If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and today I'm sitting down with Gabor Bekish, author of Data Analysis. He's an assistant professor at the Department of Economics and Business of the Central European University in Austria and a senior research fellow at the KRTK Institute of Economics in Hungary. Gabor, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I look forward to talking to you about a lot, a lot of the things that you've been up to, including data analysis for business, economics, and policy, your uh, co-authored text that I've gotten halfway through, I have to admit. It's it's a big book and I got it last week, so I haven't had time to finish it, but I do have to say that I'm really impressed how you can put everything together in a way that's accessible for fairly new people, but also reveals a lot of the depth that, you know, more, more seasoned data analysts might want to get from a book like this. So let's jump right into it. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your background first before we get into the text itself. Well, first, thanks a lot for the compliment. I mean, it's 844 <laughs> pages, right? So it's not expected to be read overnight. So that that's completely, completely okay. I mean, my background, so I'm an applied economist. I, you know, I normally do research in a variety of fields about firm behavior and performance and teams and organizations. Applied economist means that I work with data, with large data sets or small data sets with surveys and, and, and big data as well. And, um, you know, I do analysis. That's what applied economists do on these fields. And, um, I mean, one thing that is not necessarily standard is that I had a few years between, you know, working in academia and my studies, and I worked for an investment bank in London. So I have a little bit of background um, in, in, in business, and I've done ever since a couple of consulting projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is how this idea that you want to work on on topics and, and questions that are interesting beyond academia kind of came about. And I've been teaching a variety of versions of data analysis for 10 years, originally with my co-author, who's, who's also Gabor, and, um, and then, then alone. So this has been, uh, yeah, that's the past. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you bring a wealth of experience. uh, And one of the things I wanted to start asking you about was the idea of a textbook, especially one as large and as, as, you know, full of complex ideas as this one. Obviously, that takes quite a while to put together to to write to edit, you know, I've seen never as big as this, but I've been through the process. And I know how uh, sometimes very slowly it can be. And then data science, we think of as, you know, cutting edge, every five seconds, you have to learn something new. I wonder how you took data analysis principles and chose them 
and fought with that possibility that, you know, technology is changing, ideas are changing, but there are certain things that will last quite a while. I mean, uh, some of the comments in the book are clearly designed, uh, you know, not to be thrown away after the newest thing comes out or the newest app comes out. So I wonder how you make those choices. And maybe you could point to some of those things that are kind of like tried and true. And maybe you had to make other decisions about what to keep and not. I mean, I think it's a great angle, and you know, it it it. So, so people who are coming from the data science world and engineers, they they would often point to the plethora of of applications and new tools and you know, new new methods. While as people who are kind of have this classical training or academia, they would say, "Well, we know things for a long, long time. Right? There is nothing new here. Right? Most of the things that we know, we have known for a long while." Right, so there is, mm-hmm. you know, there is these two worlds, and I think there is truth in both. And what we try to do is curate content, right? In the sense that there is a lot of things that we know, and so the question was like, what are the top 50, 20, whatever things that everybody who is working with data should know, right? So th- this curation process was the hardest, and and not only to decide what to put in, but what to not. Include right both both questions were pretty hard, and I think the experience was important because of this to think about okay what are the what are the things old or new that we should that we should talk about and in terms of experience I mean not only academia but like you know in business and consulting but also you know we both of us did a lot of public policy projects you know we worked for central banks and governments mm-hmm. and and international organizations so so what are the things that people need. Um, now, in terms of examples, I think the idea of a regression, which is basically conditional comparison, in, in mm-hmm. essence, that you are comparing uh, average values of, of some variable by other variables, this idea of conditional comparison, I think this has been around for a long, long time, right? People know about this, so, but it's still very important and it's still an essential building block. And it's a way to think about what is data analysis. Data analysis, in essence, is really about comparison, right? Conditional comparison mm-hmm. uh, w- with, you know, easier tools, looking at group averages to super complicated tools, you know, using machine learning libraries to make a prediction for different features with different features. But in essence, you know, there is comparison. So this is something that we wanted to communicate throughout the book that 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 this is important. So that's kind of the evergreens. And in terms of the new thing, so traditionally in in most university courses of data analysis or econometrics or quantitative methods, uh, prediction and machine learning is not part of the core curriculum. Mm. Not only machine learning, right? That's sort of the newer bits, but even the idea of prediction of how we should think about making predictions. That's typically not part of the core curriculum. And we wanted to make make it as important in thinking about causality, which is part of the core curriculum, because in the real world, you often want to make predictions. Mm-hmm. And this is why you get paid. And this is not only true in, in business, it's also true in public policy. You You have a new tax policy or, or an investment or, you know, a, a new measure and you're interested to predict its impact on people, right? So not only in business, but also in public policy. So, you know, what I think as, I wouldn't say new, but, but something that is not part of, of core text is prediction. And, and so we wanted to keep, you know, something that's been around for a longer time, but also add some new twists. 
Yeah. Were there any difficult decisions where I guess you had to choose what you could focus on? Maybe there was something you were using and then you thought, well, first of all, yeah. What were you using or what do you typically use? What is, uh, what are some of the key features of your stack and how did that translate into the sort of principles that you were thinking about? Well, uh, <laughs> not that you have to name everything, but I'm curious if there's a few things that you tend to use, and then how did you choose? In terms uh, of using, include? you mean you mean software or tools, or, or what do you have in mind? Yeah, exactly. Are you no, are you a Tableau okay. guy, or what do you what do you tend to use? Okay, cool. So, funny you should say that we wanted to make this book, and that also goes back to your earlier question. We wanted to make this book tool agnostic. Mm-hmm. We're not married to R or Python or Stata or SPSS or Tableau or Excel. We wanted to make everything to be independent of tools. And the reason for that is that tools are changing. So when you know we were, we were both old enough that we started to use different software that we use now. And so we have gone through this idea that you change your tools and you have to learn new stuff. So we wanted to you know, have a book that has no code in it, as, 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 as you might have seen, as opposed to some other books, there are no code in it. So that, you know, people with, you know, any persuasion might, might like and, and, and use. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to have some principles, right? So that's not, that, that's about tools, but in terms of principles, I think we wanted to push some principles and, and one would be that you have to make and you know that the, the analyst has to make a lot of choices, and that should be explicit, and and you should think about those choices and not like, you know, stick with the defaults from you know, using color schemes to making decisions about engineering, data engineering, and filtering, and designing your 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 sample. So you have to make these you know to push that the decisions that there's a lot of decisions, and. It's fine to make them. You have to make them. There are no rules. It's not statistics. It's not science. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of decisions that you want to make, and you have to be upfront and explicit. So this was certainly one kind of principle that we wanted to uh, push. And the other would be probably to be transparent and you know write code when you can and write code for the purpose of transparency and reproducibility. Mm-hmm. You know, document what you do and stuff like that. This is pretty academic, but I think it's 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 also pretty standard in business. And and this is not something that you teach students early on, but we wanted to kind of make that clear pretty early on in the book. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I ask is that often, if I'm coming up with a lesson or I'm working on something, it's very hard for me not to think about you know, well, this is how you would write it in Python, or this is how you would do that. And so it sounds like you had a, it wasn't a challenge necessarily for you, or maybe, maybe it was to get away from the actual applications that you might be using or, or the languages you might be using and to abstract it. How, how was that process? So first, I think it's important to, to be able to think in meta code or in, you know, in pseudo code in the sense that mm-hmm. to think, so first I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to run this regression or this model you know, this is going to produce estimates and I'm going to, you know, you know, do a graph to show this and that, right? So it's important to be able to think in terms of process. The second is that the fact that it's not in the book does not mean that was, that was not an issue. Quite the opposite is true. So all, you know, there are 47 case studies in the book and each of them has, you know, 
one or two or three bits of code, and everything is available in R, in Python, and in Stata, so the three most frequent languages. So while I didn't have to think about this writing the book, I had to think about this all the time because we were writing code in different languages and translating them with mm. you know a lot of people's help, translating them into code into other code, and then figuring out so why the heck can I say heck? Why the heck are whatever you, know, you like? Why the heck is a histogram not the same in Python R and Stata? Why why is this the case? And then you have to drill down into the details of 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 coding and think about oh my god the the bins are differently defined as defaults in different languages mm -hmm. and this is why histograms look different differently in across different platforms so on the one hand when we were writing text of how to do stuff and and what is a logistic regression and when does it make sense to use it we were not thinking about code but as we were writing case studies which again make up like one third of the property in the book, it's one third about pages. So we constantly thought about code and, and translating code, you know, one code into another. And it was an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Okay. No, that I figured because that tends to be what happens in the background. I mean, it looks so, so perfectly uh, concise in the book that, yeah, I knew that <laughs> I had a sense that you had done some editing or there might, there must've been some headaches, but that's interesting to think about. I wonder if you, learned anything from that experience that uh, that you think helped make the book maybe more understandable or, or translated one one code like if you only use python this book might have been quite different i wonder that's that's a very interesting question i never really thought about this but one thing is that to think that you that that oftentimes you need to understand more about the 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 algorithms that run in the background how are you know what is the exact process in a in when you do classification and you run random forest what is exactly that is done and what are the options what are the parameters in r you have more choices in python the default is good but in the default in r is not good so we had to think about okay so which one is good and understand a lot about the algorithms behind it and then it's going to be one sentence in the book but then it was you know three people working on looking through, you know, the documentation of these algorithms and trying to understand the details. Now, wh whether there is any takeaway from this, apart from don't do it at home, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but probably that there's a lot of result. So this is the takeaway for you, that there's a lot of results in our work that depends on some tuning parameters, some settings in algorithms that we use, that we never think about. Hmm. Right, that there is no like a single good solution that gives you, you know, sometimes there's a closed form solution, right? So if there is a closed form solution, that's fine. But very often there's some kind of maximization going on in the background and how exactly it's done, how the search, the grid search works, you know, how these stuff are done are, are actually coded mm -hmm. that tends to matter. Sometimes it matters a teeny tiny bit. Sometimes it actually has quite an, an impact on the results and we never think about this and this is how i got to think about this and i don't want to think about it but yet i know we had to yeah well and i'm sure it made it a stronger book from that experience even though i thank you for your suffering it made it, which made it easier and more informative for readers i think so yeah thank you 
I want to ask you, you mentioned already the case studies, which you know are plentiful in the book and really help to get across a lot of the points that may be more abstracted without the case studies. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, how and why you chose these case studies. Maybe you had a guiding principle or something, and then maybe you could get into a couple of examples that you think are helpful for understanding some of the concepts. Yeah, I mean, so... So there are, there are topics that we wanted to use because we like them and think are important. And I'm going to tell you two examples. And then there were sort of data problems or analytical problems where we had to search through a lot of case studies. So some of the case studies we already had in mind, and then there were situations where we tried out five. And right, so we tried, up, tried out about two and a half times as many case studies as ended up in the book. So, you know, a lot of them, some of them were dropped immediately, you know, fairly soon. Others we entertained and others were developed and then decided that's not, that's not good. So how, how, how did we pick the ones that we did? So there were, there were topics that, that we liked. So I like soccer, football. <laughs> and so I wanted to have some examples about, about sports and, 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 and football or soccer in particular. And then we also wanted to talk about public policy. So my, my colleague, he worked on health and retirement. So we wanted to talk about health in an international context, comparing smoking habits and, and health benefits. So, this, so health was another issue that we wanted to talk about that's maybe not as traditional in, in econ or in business books. But health and, and sports, uh, you know, th- these were pet projects or pet interests. Mm-hmm. And then we also wanted to use the textbook to talk about important social issues. So... You know, one thing that is, you know, one example for that is that it is important to understand why women make less money than men do. And I think that there's a lot of discussion about this, but most of the discussion is about people who already convinced about this fact and agree with each other. And that's not a huge challenge to talk to them. Now, Mm -hmm. we think that through data analysis and through thinking about the data, we can talk about important social issues. What what happens when there is an earthquake in a a poor country? You know, why do men make more than women? And so one case study is about understanding the gender gap in the U.S. and why, you know, why is there, you know, 15, 20% difference in earnings? What What is the reason? What is the... What are the, the the age component of this? What are the professional component of this? How should we think about this? Is it kind of a selection issue? Is it kind of a discrimination issue? You know, and have this conversation, but have this conversation with data, without you know, without with a, you know, while we focus on the analytical process and understanding the steps, we also have to discuss this. And I think that's you know that that's kind of a hidden purpose. And then you know, for other case studies. We wanted to find large data sets that are useful for, for many. So we scraped, so some of the data, some of the case studies we collected the data for. So we scraped data on, on hotel prices because it's just a, a natural field where you know, most people know what, you know, what is it to find, to try to find a, a hotel, how to think about comparisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can replicate the same story in different cities. You know, so there are these practical issues that we wanted to talk about something in the book on one city and then have it as exercise for other cities that, you know, people in groups can do, right? So that was another hidden agenda to have have data sets and projects that allow, that give themselves to to exercises on on, on the field. So this is how most of them came about now. 
in terms of examples. So let me give you four examples and then you can pick which, which I talk about more. Sure, like, okay. What you think is more interesting for, for the audience. So when I mentioned football, so one case study is about what happens when a team changes its manager. Is it is it you know there's a team that's losing and that's you know that goes beyond soccer obviously. So there's a team that's losing and it fires the manager, the coach, and then there's a new one. And is it going to make uh, the team perform better in the short run? So that was one of the case studies. The other was a prediction exercise where we have data on swimming pool tickets and you want to predict how you know how many people will come in a given day mm-hmm. the third is another prediction exercise where you want to predict if a firm will default or not in the next two years based on some some data that some some uh, features that you have about them and the fourth as so there is a merger between two major US airlines and you are interested in figuring out what is the effect on consumers? For yeah, example, which one, which one do you want to hear more? You know, I just want to say, though, for listeners, like as, as you're describing these, which, yeah, is a, is a nice, very just a sliver of all the case studies in the book, they seem quite disparate. And as if, if, if you were to get a job as a data analyst, I can't imagine that you would be, deal- maybe there are some cases, but most in most cases, you wouldn't be dealing with all of these things all of these different scenarios, but by reading about them, I think it makes you a more versatile person to be able to analyze different situations, right? So even if you're never dealing with the soccer example, which is what I want to talk about, I think is very interesting. Just seeing how that's done may help you in a totally different situation. And so that's one of the things I've sort of picked up myself having read on data analysis is that I'll read something like I'm not a super big football or soccer fan. I definitely don't care myself whether a new manager will help or hurt a team like that's not something that I've that's challenged me and that I want to predict personally but hearing how this works is always going to be beneficial even in very different situations so I think yeah I just want to plug the book as something that helps you think I guess linearly might be a way of considering it I don't know if that's linear thinking itself so I mean okay so first thanks for the compliment I appreciate it the, the second is that so the first so before we talk about the case that is the first sentence of the book is data analysis is a process. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually thought about the first sentence. I mean, it's not as good as some of the first sentences of Tolstoy or uh, <laughs> other novels, but, but, but it, was, it was carefully picked, the first sentence, data analysis is a process. So when you say kind of linear, not necessarily linear, but that this is a process and you should think about this as a, as a package or as a process, I think that's very important. And eventually the case studies, all of them, try to pitch this process that starts with a research question. And then mm-hmm. you, know, you think about what kind of data do you need or you have, whether you need to enrich it, whether you need to make some changes, think about your sample, the analytical process, describing the data, you know, maybe understanding some problems that you have, and then doing the analysis itself, then maybe going back to the data and thinking about maybe I need something or I forgot something. So have this back and forth between looking at your data and then doing the analysis. And once you're done or you think you're done, you want to have some results. You want to interpret those results. So there's a lot of emphasis on, on interpretation of understanding. So the result is 0.3. So what does that 0.3 mean? And I think this is super important in real life because in real life, 
this is you know a lot of what you want to do after you've done the analysis. You don't do it for an academic report, mm-hmm. right? You want to make sure that you that, that there is some takeaway, and then you know there 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 is an interpretation of of your results, and then you want to answer your research questions. So in that sense, this is I hope what you kind of picked up that there is this process or or lineup of of events, if you will, mm-hmm. and yeah, then. That- so, well, I was just, just going to say that because they are quite different, like the examples you just gave, the while the process will remain the same, I've seen books, or, you know, I've been reading where it's always, you know, a financial report, and this is how the output goes. So it can become very sort of automated in your in your thinking. But as soon as you add all these different scenarios, then you really get to understand the process as opposed to, you know, like press this button, then press this button. So yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's really powerful. I want to hear about the new hires and whether or not you should hire a new manager for a, a failing team. Right. So no, I mean, I mean, just to finish off this this train of thought is that in some sense, all these case studies are are metaphors, right? You you, mm-hmm. you are you are using them to get not just to answer the question, but to get a feeling, okay, so this, it looks like, you know, when you see something later on in your job, okay, it's not exactly this, but it looks like that example that I had. And, and exactly. you know, we, we heard back that oftentimes when you do interviews, actually, in consultancies, you get very similar questions to, to, to ours. So football or soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the question is this, there is, you know, there, there, are, there are teams in a league, in a typical league, you have like 20, and there are about 40 rounds in a year. So some teams will perform worse than, than ex- expected. And then during the season, they will fire the, the coach and they will have a new one, right? So there are changes that are planned and stuff like that, but often you, you change in during the, during the season. So the question is, let's try to compare, going back to, this idea of, of comparison as a key idea. Let's compare teams that they fired their coach and, and let's let's compare the performance of these teams before and after, right? So you want to say, okay, if I see that the performance improves after the coach is fired, then we should do it, right? If, if we underperform, we should just get rid of the guy and have a new one. Fantastic. This is what we see, right? We see comfortably that team performance improves you know, the, if you compare six games before and after, you would see that the six games after the new guy, the team performance is substantially better. Okay. Hmm. So what's the, you know, the other thing you often ask is what can go wrong, right? What can go wrong? What, is there a problem with this analysis? Well, there is a problem with this analysis. There are a few ones. The first is that if you go a little bit back in the data, you would see that the six games right before the firing is actually worse than kind of before. So there is a dip before the firing, right? So you can mm-hmm. argue, well, there are, there, you know, there, there are problems, the teams are underperforming, but in addition to that, before the fi- firing, you know, players already know something or there is a discussion, you know, there is a, there is a problem. So there is actually, you know, a, a sharp decline right before firing so if you compare the performance of team of teams after the firing and not immediately before but a little bit beyond that you see there is still an improvement but not much that there is this kind of sudden gap and then reversal and it turns out that this kind of pattern and this is 
it, it's fantastic that you mentioned this idea of what are case studies used for. It turns out that you see this kind of dip in many other applications in, in, in economics when there is an intervention. There is either a tax break or or an investment, or a, a, you know, you fire some, you know, a manager, or or in you know, many other applications, you see that there is a drop. It's called an Aschenfetter drop. Labor economists or people who have econ background may may have heard it. Aschenfetter is a super famous economist, and you know, we are a big fan, and we were hoping he would also get the Nobel Prize, but he didn't. But never mind. But my my point is that what we see in soccer, right, this pattern that there is a decline and then there is a sudden drop, the action happens and then there is this reversal. This is not specific at all to, to soccer. This mm-hmm. is a very general pattern. And if once you see it, you're going to recognize it if you see it elsewhere. And you're going to remind, well, just because I see a large improvement after an intervention, it doesn't mean that it's actually a large improvement. It may be because before the intervention, there was something special. So this is how it kind of helps you to think about real life. Okay. So this is this the end of the answer? It turns out it's not the end because what you really want to do is you want to compare to other failing teams that don't fire their coaches, right? So you want to compare mm-hmm. what is this, how does this pattern compare to other teams that are equally suck, but they don't fire their coach? And it turns out that you know, for the data set that we, for the data that we use, which is English Premier League for you know, 20 years, in English Premier League for the period that we look at, these teams that don't fire their coach mid-season tend to improve just as much as those who do. There is a little bit of improvement, right? Bad periods are followed by, you know, good periods. There is some reversal of fortunes, whether you fire your coach or not. Now, importantly, this is a short term, right? So we look at the next six games. In the long run, you know, years and years after, they may do better. So you're not saying that you should not do it. But mm-hmm. clearly, what we see is that in the short run, just because you see an improvement, it's not because of a change of coach. There you go. There you go. That is interesting. And like, uh, like you're saying, it helps illustrate a, a much bigger point and it makes me think also like the the records from the English Premier League would be great you know that like that's been kept i'm sure they're quite accurate and relatively available or you know you could download it or something do you have advice for people who are working at organizations that may not have kept great records you know in terms of keeping their own data or maybe they're in a sector that the data isn't free flowing like it would be in a and sort of like a public facing like sport like sports we get to see how many goals are scored uh you know baskets are, are shot or missed or whatever and so like that seems like a great area to do data science and we've seen in sports you know a lot of interesting stats come up you know i was watching baseball the other day and uh, just the, the level of detail, like this guy hits better against left-handed people, 25% of the time. Like, it's amazing how you can break that stuff down because that data is available. So I wonder if you have any tips for people where the data isn't as readily available, or maybe they have to, uh, I don't know, there's a different way of thinking about data in some cases. I think this, I, you know, the, the, the idea that what kind of analysis is possible is driven by the size and quality of your data is really important, mm-hmm. right? Is that 
depending on both, and, and I think both quality and size matters, right? So not only size matters, but also the quality. It's not just big data versus like smaller one, but also how reliable, you know, sports mm-hmm. data are extremely good quality, right? There, there's very few problems. If you look at, you know, most other data sets, both within companies and in public domain, there are a lot of, you know, problems of, of, of quality, reliability. So I think, the the important insight is that you have to understand what are the limitations and opportunities that your data gives you. If you have, you know, 15 data points, there is only so much you can do. If you have 150, you can do much more. And if you have a million, then again, there is the, the opportunities are are wider. For mm-hmm. this particular exercise, we didn't need that much data, but we still needed, you know, 10, 20 years to to have enough variation, right? We needed to so in this case, what we needed to have is we needed to have enough firing during the season so that we can make this comparison meaningful. We needed teams that fire their coaches. The other thing, right, is that you need variation. If I wanted to compare teams that fire their coach midseason with teams that don't and they equally suck, you need variation. If mm-hmm. all the teams fire their coach when they suck, you cannot study this question. You cannot answer this question. So you need variation, right? That's also important. If you want to understand how a cut of your price will affect consumer, your consumers and the demand and, the, and your sales, you need to have had different prices for your product. If it was always priced $4.99, that data, how, you know, doesn't matter how much, you know, what the size of it. If it's always $4.99, you're never going to learn the variation of consumer demand by price because it's always 4.99 so you know that's that's not a question you can ask right? so this is also a variation in in your object that's 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 something that you want to also think about here we had that variation and we needed 20 years so that we would have enough variation hmm. yeah i wonder if if in doing this work and in your experience there are kind of telltale signs that a data project will or won't be successful. So as you've already said, you know, if you don't have robust data, if you don't have a large amount of high quality data, then already, you know, garbage in, garbage out, you can't necessarily do much. It's gar- I'm sorry, it's not garbage in, garbage out. It's just that your methodological choices are much more limited. And maybe all mm. you're going to do is group averages. That's it. Right? Yeah. You have to live with the fact that it's not going to be machine learning. It's going to be group average. And my friend, if you have 25, <laughs> 25 observations, that's what you're going to do. And that's fine. Right? It's not just garbage in, garbage out. That's, that's of course, true. But beyond that also, that the size of, of your data is going to limit you know, the mm. tools and the methods and the questions you can have. That's a, that's a good point. So maybe to rephrase my question, have you seen in your experience places where there are going to be clear limits? So uh, data, the input, obviously, that's one place. But along that uh, process, are there places where you've seen that, you know, that's a telltale sign that you need to only do this? Or if you try to do this, it's not going to work. Like, what would an experienced data analyst be able to see that an inexperienced one might not? Wow, this is not an easy question. Uh, I mean, it's because it's so case specific. I mean, I'm struggling to find like a general theme in this case. I mean, apart from the fact that you have an organization that want to ask more than the data allows or the, the size of their data allows, 
Mm. I think another telltale sign would be the lack of investigation into the quality of your data. I think that that that's something. So if you see that, so here it is. If you see that an organization has this approach that I have this data, I'm gonna put it into my computer, I'm gonna hire two analysts, and then they're gonna tell me the truth. That's a telltale sign that they don't know what they're what they're doing, and there are minefields ahead. Hmm. Right? Many many because data is so prevalent and and people read you know all the good use cases. They have this idea that you know, and then there are all these automating technologies and you know, all these libraries you can access for for different tasks. Is that you have this idea that you just plug in the data run something or you got people to run them and you know they're going to bring the result mm -hmm. um so if you have you know and and if you and, and the opposite is if you see humility towards your data that i understand there's a there are problems i'm willing to spend time effort money on understanding my data and and cleaning and just figuring out problems and be humble about that yes it's going to happen that's actually a good sign Hmm. You know, if you see a budget and like hours and you see, well, a large amount of hours are, are put into figuring out the data and the quality and what variables mean. You know, we started a book, if you've as thoroughly read the first half as you, as you, as you said <laughs> you, you did, you, you, you might have come across this. You know, we, we, we start talking about data quality and, and, you know, mm -hmm. what is the coverage of variables, how reliable they are, uh, what is the validity. And, and these are quite meta when you read it, but when you go and, and work with data, it's really important that you think about what is the actual meaning of a variable? Is it, is it doing what it says it does, right? So if you see an organization is open and paying attention to this, that's a good sign. If it doesn't, that's a bad sign. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think actually of situations where like you, the data analyst, may be very well aware that there are some problems with the data that you want to dedicate that time, like you just mentioned, but that the stakeholder, maybe the manager, CEO, whoever it is that you're ultimately reporting to, thinks either explicitly or implicitly that you have data. Why am I not seeing the prediction of what this and this will do? Do you have advice or have you seen ways of dealing with those kinds of situations where there may be a disconnect where, yeah, the people being the people receiving the report expect some kind of perfect truth, even if the people creating the report, the data analyst, may know that it's not as simple as that or that there may be flaws. How do you communicate those things to different kinds of audiences? I wish I knew. I mean, it, it's, it is. So I think this disconnect between managers or, or, or you know, people at the level who wants to see the results and the, and the analysts or the data scientists is I think the number one problem why so many projects fail mm. is because the expectations are just very different. And I, and, and not always can you have like a magic wand and, and make people understand that we need more time, more effort. It's, it takes more time. It's not going to happen in three months because this, you know, every, every use case is different. And I think kind of going back to your earlier point, about variation in our case studies, we wanted to show different case studies with small and large data and different problems so that people would kind of have this genuine understanding that all projects are different, even if the process is fairly similar. Mm -hmm. The you know what can go wrong varies project by project. And you know 
experience comes with going through a lot of pain in different types of projects and understanding that something will go wrong. Just need to figure out what and how you communicate that. You know, when you are in a project already, I don't know. That's the honor. I don't know. I've been there, done that. I don't know. I wish I did. It's a problem and a conflict. And if people are nice to each other, then it goes better than if people mm. are not. I think genuinely it is important to teach data literacy or or understanding a little bit about how data analysis projects go for a broader audience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just finished teaching data literacy for lawyers. And I thought, well, you know, lawyers. And yes, you know, they are they are smart people. They 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 will understand, you know, high level concepts. And and you know, you can talk about stuff and and you know what's easy, what's difficult, how things are done. So I think this is, you know, that's the long run solution to educate people who don't do data projects themselves mm-hmm. to give them some education so that they would be able to communicate with those who do. Yeah. No, and as you as you mentioned, I guess it's like a two-tier, at minimum two tiers, where you want an organization to have some literacy or you want people being hired to have some literacy about data. But you also, I think, in a, in a project where you're bringing information, you want to make sure that people understand the limits of your data, I think, is a, a sort of individual conversation on a project, but also a much bigger one in terms of, you know, social conventions about what, what our expectations are. Yeah, and I think, you know, also trying to answer an earlier question is that, so how do you see, what are the good signs? So I think another good sign is when there is a research, when there is a very well-defined research question, mm-hmm. there is, you know, even a success metric, right? What I want to know, what is my loss function? You know, I want to, so something, how will I decide if the project is successful? What are, what are my metrics? What do I want to learn or know? When you have that, that means that there is, a more under you know more nuanced understanding rather than I just want to make a good prediction, yeah, right. So I think that's also a, a good sign that you know good things can happen. Another is if there is you know so the other thing we we try to push is the domain knowledge at the so you know we talked about managers but let's talk about the analysts right. So we often think as analysts that we have the data the data is going to tell us something and I think it's a deep-rootedly wrong, the data is not telling anything. There is this famous quote by Hayek, the Austrian economist, that without a theory, facts are silent. That a theory, facts are silent. And I'm loving this quote more and more because it tells you that you have to understand how things work. You have to have some theories. The data itself is silent until you, you try to test a hypothesis or, or understand a pattern and often you need domain knowledge. So I think for the analysts, it is important to understand the business. It's important to understand how things work so that you can devise theories that helps you work with the data. So, you know, we talked about management and sure there are problems, but also the, the hubris of analysts, mm-hmm. that the data and the fancy methods will be enough. And it's not. If you want to talk about football, you need to understand how the process of coach firing happens. If you want to talk about Wages, you need to understand, okay, how are wages set? You know, what are the fields? What determine wages? What are the theory behind wage settings? Hmm. So you need to have some kind of understanding of the topic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think that's important. That can be easily overlooked when we focus only on the, the data or the facts of the matter and putting them into the context is so important. I wonder if, if you could envision sort of a reader before reading your book, somebody who's coming with relatively little, I mean, it depends obviously, but before and after reading your book, what do you hope might have changed? What, what you know, thoughts or practices or skills would somebody leave with? And, you know, not to put too much pressure on you and your book, but in general, I think it helps us understand, like, what does a novice data analyst look like? And how can you tell them apart from somebody who has, I just uh, gained not necessarily expert knowledge, but, you know, a step above, what are some of those differences? What do you hope that people will get from this book and from just becoming better data analysts in general? You know, one of the blurbs that we have, it says that, you know, our book will will teach 95% of what the modern day data analysis need. And the person who wrote this got a Nobel Prize in economics last year. So, that, you know, that, that, that means something. Yeah, that's not good to brag, but you know, not to brag, but 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 <laughs> but still. And I think this idea that we don't teach everything, but we teach the key, you know, the key points. And then so somebody had, you know, who has gone through the book, would kind of have, you know, some experience in basically four areas. So the first one would be how you start working with your data, how you explore them, how you wrangle it understanding, you know, tidy data concepts, understanding how you collect data and what it means and, and you know, the foundation, you know, the boring stuff in, in, in a sense, but the important stuff, how you visualize data. Yeah. So I think that's one, that one set of, of skills and, and experiences. The second is how you find patterns in, in the data, run regressions, think about how do I interpret my coefficients. So certainly being able to interpret model coefficients, that's something we really hope people will do after the book, because something that, you know, we hammer this very hard and maybe repetitively that you, you know, this is, this is what it exactly means. And, you know, what, what does that mean for the business or the, the, the policy? The third would be having this prediction mindset that you are able to think, okay, so I have my data, I want to train a model, I want to build a model that can predict outside of the data that I have, you know, how do I do this? And I think the methods are important, but, you know, they're going to change, right? So this is the part that algorithms change, there are new ones. So you need to understand kind of why do you need algorithms to solve certain problems and what is their essential idea of, of machine learning, but have this prediction mindset. I think that's that's important. And the fourth, the fourth one would be to be able to analyze the effect, the causal effect of interventions. That's happening both in business and in public policy. That you make changes and you want to understand what are the causal effects of that. So to to be able to do that, to have you know the key tools that 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 you can use and this you know, the, the, the causal thinking, what might have caused this? How do I prove this? I think the, these are these are four groups of of things that we hope the readers will have, you know, by the time they have they have done with the book. And, you know, not only, I mean, we didn't really talk about much, but there is kind of an ecosystem around the book, you know, the code and the data. So we also want people not only to read through the book, but have, you know, the full experience of going through the code in their favorite language. Mm-hmm. And and this is how you you really understand that you go through the code, that you go through the exercises, you try, you know, try to do it on your own. And this is not like one, you know, this it's not like for one week yeah. instead of watching uh Netflix, right? This is this is uh 
you know, this is a longer journey, as it were. That's, a, that's actually a perfect segue because one of the last questions I tend to ask guests that I picked up from uh, Rebecca Calajaris, who does the other podcast, is a little bit shorter in, in perspective. It's what one or two things could people do within the next day to improve? So we've already established, I don't think anyone can read this book in one day. It's going to take more time. It's going to take more practice, especially to become familiar with these concepts. And that's obviously okay. something people should do. What's something that people who either are or want to be data analysts or want to work with data analysts more effectively, what can they do you know, today or tomorrow that would already start to improve things? I know. I, I mean, it's fantastic to see the American way that you wanna you wanna have. Like, what can I do now? And 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 and, and that's and I and I love it. You know, I I I appreciate it. So I think you know most people would have some background in data analysis or econometrics or statistics or data science by the time they pick up the book. Not not all of them, but some will have. So one purpose that we had is to have very very short sections. You know, two or three pages you know, a very structured book so that people can fill in their gaps. So I think one mm-hmm. thing that you can do is say, what do I remember from, from, from college? Or what do I remember? What are the areas I have vague memory, but I don't really remember? Try to go and find it. It's well-structured, so you're going to find it. And then read around that topic. Maybe read the case studies first and then go back to the theory. So try to plug holes in your knowledge. Again, most people will know a little bit about visualization or a little bit about statistics or a little bit about regressions or a little bit about predictions. So one thing you can start with is identify what are the bits and pieces where you know a little bit, but you don't remember that much. Find those struck, you know, bits in the book and plug the holes. And then you're going to come away with, well, now I understand. So I, you know, I have this vague memory, but I, you know, now I remember. And, and this is really intentional. We really want this to be kind of also a handbook, right, for, for professionals who have studied stuff and they use it to look up that they don't remember. And, yeah. and that was one of the, you know, this is a college textbook, but also a handbook for, for practitioners to look up stuff that they, they want to, you know, just plug the holes. Great. Yeah, I think it definitely serves that purpose. And yeah, it gives people a lot to think about. It's been great talking to you, Gabor. And I wonder if people want to uh, learn more about you or follow your work, where do you recommend they check out? Well, the textbook has a website. It's gabor'sdataanalysis.com. So, you know, both both our, both the co-authors are, are, are Gabor. So it's gabor'sdataanalysis.com. You can find it. And there is a lot of details about the book, you can look into it, you can look at the chapters, the case studies. So that's one one thing. The other is I am on Twitter, the, uh, both personally at, at Gabor Bekish, or the textbook also has a Twitter handle at Gabor's Data. So you can, you can find us on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. And so if you're interested to learn more, you know, fo- follow me or have a discussion on Twitter, and, and you know, look up the, the textbook, look up the GitHub repo. So the textbook has a large GitHub repo with all the codes, the data, and, and, and more. We now have online courses in R, Python, and Stata f- that comes with the books. So if you want to learn coding or a new I language, you can also uh, use that. So yeah, there, there's a lot of goodies, both on GitHub, on the website, and you can have a chat on Twitter. Perfect. Well, yeah, there's so much to learn from it. And it's obviously a continuing conversation as things grow and, and the field grows. But uh, 
yeah, this is an important contribution. It was it was great talking to you and being able to pick your your brain for an hour. I really appreciate it, Gabor. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thanks a lot. 